Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley and this is a very special episode where I'm interviewing Matt Hancock, the Health Secretary, live in Birmingham. So Matt, we'll come on to your day job later, but normally when I do these things, we've done them at previous party conferences, it's good to talk to the politician, but you know, the person and their, their background. So I wanted to speak to you particularly because everyone says they, you know, they want a backstory and yours in, from the Tory party is extraordinary. You were privately educated and then you went and did PPE at Oxford, <laughs> uh, which uh, will, will come in hugely useful when uh, the inevitable leadership bid is launched. But just talk to us a bit about... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, it was really nice to see you. <laughs> <laughs> um, talk to us about your upbringing and where. I know you've talked before about you know growing up in a village and that sort of thing. But where did where, where did Matt Hancock begin? <laughs> well, I uh, I began in an NHS hospital like uh, almost everybody else. I, I grew up in a in a family that was uh, dominated by the small business uh, that we ran. Uh, my stepdad wrote the code. It was an early computer software business. My stepdad wrote the code and my mum ran the business. So you can see uh, who wore the trousers in our family. They, they built that business and, you know, I, it, was, it, it, was, uh, it, it, it underpinned, I suppose, the values that I've got and why I've ended up as a conservative because they worked extremely hard and uh, they believed in aspiration and the ability to, uh, to achieve, you know, reach your goals. And is that where you got the tech bug? Well, yes. I, uh, yeah, I've yeah. been a um, technophile for all my life. Uh, I love the gadgets, and um, I learnt to code. You know, as a well before I was at before I was at secondary school, I guess. And what gadgets in particular did you sort of like playing with or using, or whatever, when you were a child? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I had one of those really early BBC uh, computers and with the proper um, floppy disk. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the uh, three and a half and the five and a quarter yeah. disc, uh, floppy disks. In fact, there used to be an eight-inch one, e- even older, even older than that. Um, we had this guy who um, came and worked for. He was the first person that Mum uh, and Bob employed, and um, he did a year for us. And in it, I remember he wrote a pro a game for us, uh, uh, us kids on the computer. And um, and then he went and he. He left us. It was really annoying. He left after a year to join this obscure startup in Seattle called Microsoft. <laughs> we couldn't understand what he was doing. And he said, they're hardly paying me anything. They're going to give me shares. And we thought, you're nuts. <laughs> <laughs> he was, I think he was their employee number 25. So um, uh, anyway, so yeah, I got the tech bug. Uh, and I've also, you know, that's where I learned the value of being uh, of, of enterprise. And was, was the business successful? Was it, you know, presumably, they were, like with all business, there were ups and downs? Well, yes, and there was one particular moment that really got me interested and led to the path of getting into politics eventually. Because I was, you know, I grew up, I was interested in the technology, I was also interested in the business. I was interested in how the business works, how do you um, uh, make it successful. And then in the early 90s recession, when I was a teenager, there was a big client of ours uh, that, um, that owed us money and was late in paying its bills. Still a big issue today with small businesses. Uh, and um, we got to the point where if the cheque didn't arrive by the end of the week, then the business was going to go bust. We employed, I don't know, 20, 25 people, and they would have all lost their jobs, and the house was on the line, and my mum and my 
stepdad obviously didn't, you know, they, they, they'd put their all into this. Um, and it was through no fault of their own. I felt this real sense of injustice that we could, uh, it, was, it was a nervous time. We nearly lost everything. Um, and um, thankfully, the check did arrive with the two or three days to go. And we, and the business was saved. And then somebody very helpfully invented the internet. Um, and uh, it took off. And after that, um, things were more comfortable. And uh, but it changed me because until then I was focused on how you do business, how you, how you build a business. And that made me ask the question, well, how does the whole system work? How can a perfectly reasonable, successful business uh, almost go under because of something completely outside their control? And that led me to be interested in economics and then um, and, and study it. Um, and then PPE kind of brought in uh, uh, the, the politics side. Um, and then I um, went and worked at the Bank of England. And whilst at the Bank of England, I realised that actually all the big economic decisions are made in Westminster. So um, that's how I ended that's up how here. I ended up here. And what sort of student were you? Were you a hard-working student? Were you a sort of David Cameron, leave it to the last minute, essay crisis type student? Or? Uh, do you know, if I had my time again, I would have gone to more lectures. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> they were fascinating and... Um, I don't think I appreciate it as much as uh, at the time. Um, it's, such a, it's such an extraordinary um, place. And um, um, I was more interested, I was very social. I ran the ball. I ran the social, I was the social um, secretary of the college. Um, when, I was, when I was culture secretary earlier this year, there was a moment when suddenly I thought, I've gone from being the social secretary of Exeter College to the social secretary of the country. <laughs> uh, and uh, um, and that's, so I was more interested in sort of, you know, College life and yeah. social and quite and sporty. Um, I didn't. Uh, I didn't do any politics. I was. Um, I, I had a great time. And you've done a, an interview. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't meant to be linked in quite the way they came out. <laughs> Two things very similar. Um, you, there's an interview which is uh, coming out this week that you've done with GQ, where you t you've talked, I think, for the first time about the fact that you're dyslexic. And I was just interested in why. You, you felt you wanted to talk about that and why you'd not talked about it before and the impact that it's had. How, yeah. how, what impact has it had on you? It's funny, I feel quite nervous about it. I haven't talked about it before. In politics, I didn't talk about it because it feels like, it felt like weakness um, to talk about uh, having a, a, a problem like that, which millions of people have. And um, I thought that the weakness of it sort of put me off and people might look down on me because, uh, because of it. Um, um, but actually, the truth is, it's given me some real strength. I can't read as quickly as some other people can, but I can remember details and numbers and, uh, and, and language. And I wonder whether that's partly because of it. And, and I thought, you know, I, I took some inspiration from Ed Balls yeah. um, when he talked about having a stammer. And I saw what he did. And then I saw how people reacted to the fact that he talked about it. And other people came forward and... And, you know, I, I, and then someone, said, someone else um, uh, who's dyslexic, who I didn't know for ages was also dyslexic, we had this kind of moment, uh, oh my God, you're dyslexic, how, you know, and we talked about how you, the workarounds that you have and the different ways that you have of, uh, of looking at things. He really encouraged me to say something in public and to say, you know, the message to anybody um, who uh, is dyslexic uh, is, that you can, is that you can achieve, you can, you, you can achieve whatever you want to. Uh, and um, whilst it may make it harder to do some things, it makes you better in other ways. I mean, people, it, the research shows that people who are dyslexic make lateral connections more often. And actually, 
you know, in politics, it's those sort of human and lateral connections that are often the more valuable ones. We've got a brilliant civil service who are brilliant at straight line thinking, and part of our job is to is to is to make the connections. Uh, so here I am. But God, I feel uncomfortable talking about it. And but I sh- but but it, yeah. but it's but it's great to get it to be able to say things in public. How can you, given the? I mean, I know you know even reporting on politics, there's just so much written material, reports, and yes, you know, you've got speeches and red boxes, and as in not my red box, your red box. Oh, well, I've got red uh, boxes. I've got your red box. Of too. course, you've got your my red box. <laughs> um, uh, but how do you just deal with all that sort of? I mean, other people who aren't dyslexic complain about just being swamped by that amount of reading and information. Well, I care a lot about clarity. So, for instance, you know, the morning red box email from Matt Chorley is brilliant for clarity, and uh, if you. Well, that's all we've got time for. (laughs) (laughs) And if you, you know, and and, and so clarity matters. Actually, the best advice when it comes to in the inside inside the government, um, the best writing um, uses fewer words rather than more. You know, I I live by this adage of uh, Mark Twain's that um, I, I didn't have time to write you a short letter so I wrote you a long one instead yeah. you know, and, and um, I'm quite clear with the civil service teams inside the government that they need to write with uh, clarity and um, uh, as much brevity as is, uh, as is possible yeah. um, and um, those long long paragraphs of dense words especially people using long words where a short word will do you know why do it you know um, and uh, so, so I, 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 I'm, I'm well supported. I've been well supported in the six departments I've been in by civil servants <laughs> who are up for that. There's more that they can do. There's no doubt about that. Um, and um, and then you know, actually, outside of uh, the formal um, uh, government uh, processes, you know, really good journalism is 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 brief too. Really good journalism has clarity, and I find, and and that helps me. Let's talk about your six government departments. I'm not sure we, I can remember them, even though I've been reading up on your career. Some so, of them have been d- dissolved. <laughs> they were so successful, they weren't needed anymore. <laughs> All Thanks the problems were solved and they, they could be shut down. So you, let, let, let's, let's rewind a bit. So you were at the Bank of England when mm. you were snapped up by George Osborne in yeah. the position to yeah. be his chief of staff. Yeah. Um, and then you had this sort of extraordinary relationship with George Osborne where for a long time you were... Pretty shackled to it. People said that you were, you know, incredibly close to him and loyal, and you know, maybe a mini George or whatever. And actually, over time, was that a hindrance for a while? Do you think that there's sort of, particularly when you then became an MP and then became a minister, it was always reported as being, oh, that was a sort of Osborne request, or you know, he's. Oh, I see. Oh, I see. Um, it doesn't matter now. Yeah. Um, the the truth is that um, George. I've worked very closely with George uh, on the um, economic arguments that were the big arguments of uh, the decade between the crash and Brexit. Uh, You know, that was the big argument of the time for a decade. And he and I uh, thought very, very similarly and instinctively would have the same response. So it wasn't that... Um, we did. It, there, w- there was very little effort to be in the, exactly the same place, and um, I'd know how he'd respond to it to, to something. Funnily enough, I disagree with him on Brexit, and that's the big issue of the period that we're um, living through. And um, that's, in what and way? Because you, you voted I, Remain. I, I voted Remain, but I fully accept the result, and yeah. I want to get a good deal. I'm four square behind Theresa May, and um, that isn't entirely true of George. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, facing those economic challenges that we faced in that first Parliament in coalition, 
we, we did as a government some extraordinary things and turned around this economy and you know the record numbers of jobs I'm incredibly proud of and the national living wage at the same time putting you know the biggest pay rise for the lowest quarter the, those paid in the lowest quarter in the economy the biggest pay rise ever for the people earning in the bottom quarter it's worth saying it again it's a creating record jobs thank you very much it was a it was you know sometimes we don't um, because the economy's going well and there's this politically um, more uh, contentious issue uh, of Brexit, yeah. you know, we don't, re- we don't talk enough about the fact that we turned that around. And uh, I think you did a remarkable job at that. In the early days when you were more junior minister, you probably in Westminster had a reputation for being very confident. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Do you do you think that was a you know do you think that was a fair perception, or actually now that you've now that you've spoken about your dyslexia, do you think you were overcompensating? Oh, then maybe I was. I don't know. I I, feel, I didn't feel more self confident than okay. other people, but people do say this to me. You look at the challenges coming down the track, and you do your best, and that's all you can do. You know, somebody told me something very very early on when I was. Uh, in politics, I think probably before as an MP, which is that if you go into politics to achieve a specific thing and you won't be happy until you've achieved it, that is an honourable course, but it can be a very frustrating course. If you go into politics to make life better for your fellow citizens uh, and to serve your country, then instead of all the frustrations, what you see from the platform that you're given in politics as a backbench MP, uh, as a minister in the Cabinet... That is a massive opportunity, and I very much put myself in that second category. So I see the fact that I have been asked by the Prime Minister to be the Health Secretary as a huge opportunity to do what I can to improve the health of the nation. You do what you can. You can't do more than you can. You do your best, and you throw yourself at it. And I throw myself, I'm, I'm, I'd say more optimistic than self-confident, yeah. and, but it sometimes comes out that way. I can see that. But it hasn't always been the case with... My dyslexia sometimes got in the way of this. Um, in the 2001 election, I went and helped out in, in the Guildford seat. And um, the, the sitting MP, Tory MP, um, really nice guy called Nixon Torbin, he wrote the copy, he wrote his uh, election address, and he asked me to mock it up into a, into a leaflet. I pulled out this sentence, which I thought characterised what he really stood for, and put it in as a subheading, and it said, I want to unite the community. I thought, great, pulled that out, uncontroversial. And it was only after I'd sent it to the printers, and only after they'd sent it to the Royal Mail, and only after it had landed on 50,000 letterboxes in Guildford, that I spotted that I'd written, I want to untie the community. (laughs) Anyway... Poor old Nick lost his seat by 800 votes. Um, <laughs> he's forgiven me. Uh, I can, as Jeremy Corbyn might say, I consider him a good friend. <laughs> and um, actually, you know, about two weeks after that election, uh, bumped into Owen Patterson, who I knew, because I'm from uh, Cheshire and he's next door. He said, Matt, your political career is over before it's even begun. Owen, bang on once again. <laughs> <laughs> Um, one thing I think that changed, certainly in the sort of Westminster bubble, that changed the view of you was when Theresa May became Prime Minister. And there were lots of people who had been in the Cabinet, and she, she offered them other jobs that were not in the Cabinet. And they, well, they either 
decided to go and pursue other things or flounced off, depending on what the adjective you want to use. But you didn't. You took. You, yeah. you went from being cabinet office minister, and you took essentially a demotion to being the digital minister in DCMS, yeah. and sort of th- totally threw yourself into it in a way that I don't think quite a lot of the lobby even knew there was a digital minister until you you sort of grabbed it. Right. What are you saying about Ed Vasey? Oh, he was always going on about the arts, wasn't he? Um, <laughs> he just he, he, so was I. He just liked going to the theatre um, and hanging out with uh, people at the Brits. That, that def- I've got a great Brit story as well. Come on, then. I nearly gave it in my speech. I decided it was too risque. I went to the Brits this year, uh, and I was late because of a vote in Parliament, and I turned up, and I was sat next to Ronnie Wood. And I turned to Ronnie Wood. This is a true story. I turned to Ronnie Wood, and I said, um, I'm absolutely starving, and I'd missed the main course. And he, re- he reached down into a bag next to his feet. I said, I could do the pick-me-up. He, he brought out a, a wrapped-up tinfoil like this and handed it to me. I thought, oh, my God, this could be a career-ending moment. And I, <laughs> I unwrapped it, and it was a baby bell. <laughs> That's the rock and roll you get in DCLS. <laughs> But you, but you stuck out, and you, 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 you had a, you had a big part in the, uh, the digital sector of the yeah. manifesto, which actually was one part of the manifesto, which chapter five, which survived. Yeah, the we were putting it into action. The, yeah. the uh, coming into contact with the voters. Yeah, and I don't um, think, <laughs> I don't think, <laughs> I don't think most people got to chapter five. No, it's exactly. a brilliant chapter. Go and have a look. <laughs> it's, a, it's like a Boris Johnson column. Nobody actually read it. They just let other people uh, tell them. Oh, I thought that was just me. I can't do four thousand words. <laughs> You do wonder sometimes if he's read it. But anyway, was, um, was there anything in it? I don't think so. No, don't think so. Really. You could have read one of the earlier ones. Uh, then you became culture secretary and threw yourself into that. But that, yeah. even that only then lasted six months. Six months. Yeah. So look, you know, I have this attitude, which is that if the prime minister calls you into Downing Street and asks you to um, do a job as a minister, that is a huge privilege. I mean, you know, it's absolutely extraordinary the things that you can do uh, from that position. And um, it's true that, you know, I was asked to go and see the Prime Minister in the House of Commons, which, if you don't know, during a reshuffle is very bad news. Uh, Because they they do the... um, uh, They let people go in the Commons, because then it's all behind closed doors, and then they do the hirings and the promotions in Downing Street, because then you get to walk up Downing Street and have your photo taken. And um, so I went in, and um, the Prime Minister... Um, the, the, it had been briefed to the journalists that um, people would be fired until 11 o'clock and then she'd start hiring people. <laughs> and I, I was asked to go at 10 to 11. <laughs> <laughs> and I walked in and I sat opposite the Prime Minister in her Commons office um, and um, I looked up at the clock above her head and it said five past 11. I said, oh, it's five past 11, this must be good news. And um, she said, well, it depends how you react. <laughs> I'd like you to be the digital minister and I'm from a tech background yeah. and I enjoy being a, a minister and it's something I think I could make a contribution to so I, um, it was all done and dusted in about two minutes uh, I, I accepted and I loved it it was absolutely fantastic being digital there's so many really interesting questions in the world now that really need answers and it's the sort of area that Britain can provide a global lead as well you know, our ability to be um, embracing of the, of, of the future, yet also making sure it's done in a sensible and moderate and reasonable way. You know, this is especially around the future of the internet. Mm. You know, to be in a position where people can take you seriously when you give a speech entitled The Future of the Internet, um, you know, that, for somebody especially from a tech background, 
Um, and from a business background, so suddenly the tech sector that I literally grew up in yeah. was the sector I was responsible for looking after. It was brilliant. I had a great uh, 18 months in DCMS. And one of the hallmarks of your time now since you've uh, been health secretary is how much technology seems to be informing your approach and the way you talk about it, whether it's you know, a GP app that people can use instead of going to see their usual GP or you know, on the flip side, guidance. You were talking at the weekend about guidance for proper public health guidance on how much you should be using social yes. media and that sort yes. of thing. Yes. Do, do you feel that actually in a way that the digital minister job slightly makes it seem like you know, you've got digital and you've got fishing and you've got, you know, small business. Actually, digital is across everything. It is. Yeah. And I'd, before I was um, doing the digital minister job, I was in the cabinet office doing the digital transformation of yeah. government. So I've really spent three years of ministerial life driving the digital agenda. You know, my first job was um, solving the Y2K bug in COBOL. I mean, not, not the whole thing, just <laughs> one bit of it. And... Um, there's a big advantage to the fact that the people who are put into the ministerial jobs are also local MPs, so they understand the effects of all policy areas on their area. So you're a generalist in covering everything. Um, so you know, you know things. But um, I also feel the tension that you go into a department, and if it isn't your background, you know, people are right to ask, well, what value are you going to add? And in health... Um, I'm absolutely um, determined to improve uh, the, uh, how, how good it is to work in the NHS and in social care and the workforce side. Uh, and, of course, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm grabbing the, grasping the policy areas like getting more money into prevention and social care reform that I just spoke about on the, on the stage. Um, but I, can, I, I hope I can add some value with my experience of the technical, technological revolution. And I also understand why for a long time um, nobody in a leadership position, either politically or within the NHS itself, has driven the tech agenda. Because, you know, hospital IT is something that has led to a few people losing their jobs. Uh, and um, to Andy Burnham losing £10 billion. Uh, and it was a, it's, been a, it's been a disaster in the past. And you, uh, you, you talked in your speech about how the NHS is still the biggest... Buy fax machines in the country. I mean, fax machines. But I, it's, actually, there's a funny story about that, which is that um, that, the, that fact comes from a um, Labour Party FOI. They FOI'd every hospital in the country... Um, and they, um, to find out how many fax machines they were, they did this when Jeremy Hunt was the uh, Secretary of State. They released it by total coincidence into the weekend when I was appointed on the Monday. Uh, and I've used it as a motivating argument. <laughs> so I just want to say thank you to John Ashworth and his researcher <laughs> for doing all those FOIs um, and um, contributing to my party conference speech. The, the truth is, there's a huge way to go. We've learned how to do it in other parts of uh, government, not by top-down imposition of a single solution, but also not by just letting individual organisations get on with it, rather... We set standards of interoperability, of cybersecurity, and of privacy, and then you can buy whatever you like so long as it meets those standards. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a working method that's been proven to work, and I've led projects with this method where it's worked. I've also led ones where it hasn't worked, so I've seen the sort of ugly consequences when you get it wrong, and I'm, I'm absolutely sure that this can re revolutionise tech in the NHS.
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's, let's talk about a couple of things sort of in your intro. Let, explain how you see the idea of, instead of going to the GP surgery, using an app. How does that yeah. work? What's your yeah. sort of long-term... If you could pan out, and yeah. I don't, don't even know, is it five years, 10 years, 20 years? Oh, no, it's much, much sooner than that. Okay. And it's starting to happen already. Okay. Uh, so you can, um, you can well, I, I, my, app, my GP is, is on an app. Uh, and I did that when I was in, the, in DCMS um, because my GP retired. And GP retirements is a, another issue that yeah. I'm having to deal with. But the, um, uh, it's convenient for me. It works for me. Uh, and um, you, can, you use the app. And you can either uh, interact with the AI, with the machine, and it can tell you lots of things, like I've got this symptom, what should I do? Uh, then you can escalate and have a, uh, what's essentially like a Skype uh, conversation with the GP. And if you need to see a GP physically, you can go and see one. Um, the, uh, the, but the absolute core point is that we should be using technology to make life, see- life easier for people, for patients, um, and also to... Um, reduce the burdens and the pressures on the professionals so that they can spend more time with people who need it, who don't want to use the technology. You know, the, the, um, the care always has to be available face-to-face, human-to-human. Uh, and um, the, you can't and shouldn't get away from that. But you can provide better services in a way that people... Uh, interact with in the same way that um, you know that I, I haven't been into a into a bank building for years and years, and it's hugely conven- more convenient yeah. for me to do uh, that on my phone. So, in the same way that we've seen high street bank branches closing, is, is there a point where the traditional doctor surgery, as no. we know it now, doesn't no. exist? No, no. Uh, on on the contrary. So, I think we need more GPs as well as uh, more technology, uh, and the reason is that we need to spend more effort, resources, time on prevention in the community rather than people getting to hospitals. That's the only way to make the NHS sustainable in the long term. And, and what about the use of data, which you've also talked about? There's yeah. a huge amount of data about where you can sort of map lifestyles and health outcomes in different areas. Yeah. And can you end up using that to sort of predict and then target treatments in different areas? How, how yeah, far do you think I hope so. I hope so. So you can use the... Firstly, um, data should be used um, to help to provide better um, uh, healthcare to individuals. So, you know, if you were, heaven forfend, late night, say, tonight, uh, going to... um, You know, if you were to pass out... Um, say after the. It sounds like a threat. But anyway, go on. <laughs> if I and were to find were myself to... mysteriously in the canal, <laughs> <laughs> if you were to end up in the A and E here yeah. in Birmingham, um, uh, at the 
At the moment, it isn't always the case that they will be able to find out from your record, even if they know your name, whether, for instance, you have a penicillin allergy. That could be a life or death piece of information that you yeah. might need, that they might need. Um, and the um, uh, uh, and so, first of all, data is all about improving care. Um, second. Use of data can improve research, and we can get better cures. I talked about that with the expanding the genomics project yeah. uh, in my speech today. Really exciting, cutting-edge uh, cures. And for the first time, a, a new technology that can reduce costs in the NHS. Traditionally, new drugs have come on. They've been more expensive. Technology has been a driver of cost, actually. This, these sorts of technologies can reduce costs in the NHS. That's good. Um, and then, um, thirdly, one of the areas I'm really excited about that, that Public Health England are doing a lot of work on um, is what I call predictive prevention. Right. So this is... Um, uh, I hope you like that new alliterative name that uh, we came up with. And this is about <laughs> saying that um, so far through history, public health has essentially dealt with populations as a whole. You know, the, the, the anti-smoking campaign uh, on TV is targeted at everybody. Um, but using data, both uh, medical data appropriately safeguarded, of course, for privacy reasons, um, and using other demographic data you can work out that somebody might have a higher propensity to smoke. Um, and um, then you can target interventions much more closely to try to improve the health of the nation. So I think that, pro that, that um, predictive prevention in public health is, 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 is exciting, but it's in, really in the foothills. And is that sort of targeted like political parties or news organisations can target people on Facebook with messages and you could do that with public health or is it identifying we think you you know you might get a letter in the post or an email or whatever saying we think you are at risk of yes it's more the the, more the latter, the latter. Um, I mean, in theory, you could do the former, but you want to do it very carefully because yeah. this is people's um, yeah. health. Now, now suddenly going, you, you, quick, quick, you might die on Facebook. That might, <laughs> that might set alarm bells ringing. Um, yeah, that's not really what Public Health England are into. But, um, <laughs> the, uh, but, it, but, you know, there's opportunity there. It's all got to be done very carefully. You know, this whole data piece, it's all got to be very careful. Ultimately, it's got to be based on people's consent. Uh, it's got to be based on high-quality um, standards of privacy. I think having the, I, fortunately, I spent two years of my life putting the Data Protection Act uh, into into force through Parliament. I apologise for all those emails you might have got last May. Uh, and um, the those of us who, who write emails were really pleased with GDPR. That, that, were you? Yeah, it was a huge success. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we don't we don't want, we don't want too many readers. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> well, it was actually. No, actually, it was fine. It yeah. was fine. Yeah, yeah, because you checked with people whether they actually exactly. wanted to receive yeah, your email or whether you were just spamming they, them. That. It turned out they all did, and so it was fine. Really. <laughs> oh, in uh, one of the papers today about um, you setting new cancer targets, which it was said was going to be, could be announced this week. Can you tell us any more about that? Um, well, there's a lot of work on cancer in the long-term plan that we're writing with the NHS. We've uh, proposed a budget of £20 billion extra a year over the next five years, uh, and there'll be a, a, a plan that comes alongside that, and um, tackling cancer is an important part of that plan. Now, the, um, the, what we're proposing to do is try to get earlier diagnosis of cancer where you can actually use the sort of technology we were talking okay. about. Um, because Britain is um, pretty good at, uh, at um, treating cancer once it's spotted, but we have, still have higher deaths than 
our uh, peers than similar countries uh, on the continent um, from cancer because we don't spot it early enough. So there'll be a lot of effort on that. And on the on the twenty billion pounds, I mean, you're probably the first new Secretary of State to ever arrive at a government department to find a twenty billion pound pile of money on your desk. Uh, left by your predecessor. I'm literally the first. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and depending on how, what you do with it, you might be the last. But what... Um, what do you know something, I don't... No, 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 no. Although you, we never know, do we? Anything could happen. There has been... Uh, I thought this was going OK. There were lots of... Uh, you know, there were lots of demands already on the NHS. Yes. Which that money is, you know, and there were some people who say, even though it's a phenomenal amount of money, it's still not enough. There's growing demand <clears> on that. Yeah. Then there is the huge issue of social care. Yes. Uh, and, you know, there were concerns about, you know, funding for public health and yes. that sort of thing as well. Yes. Realistically, you can't go back to Philip Hammond and say, well, we've spent all of that on managing demand in the NHS. We need another load of money for social care. Or can you? I want to spend as much of that money as possible on prevention rather than cure. Uh, I think that you can only really get a big switch out of uh, the secondary and acute sector into prevention uh, when the budget is going up. So this is an opportunity. Now, I'm acutely aware that last time there was a big increase in the NHS budget uh, in the mid-2000s. A lot of that was frittered away, and the general consensus was that uh, that didn't get the improvements that we need to see. Uh, and so I'm, I'm, I'm very aware of that. Now, there will be more support needed to stabilise the hospital sector, uh, but ultimately I want to get as much as possible out into, into prevention. That's GPs, pharmacies, uh, out into the community services and mental health services. And how big, one of the big sort of <coughs> stories which seems to be constantly bubbling just below the surface at the moment is the crisis in local government particularly shire councils, but, uh, you know, local government have taken a huge hit financially, and ultimately they are the front line in social care, and then if people end up in hospital, then your, your department ends up picking up. How concerned are you about the sort of stability of, of local government? Well, I can see the pressures. Um, and, um, in fact, you know, today's announcement of an extra £240 million to help with social care to get people out of hospital when they don't need to be in yeah. hospital medically... That's a response to these pressures. So uh, I understand it. It's a conversation that it's an ongoing conversation with with uh, the Treasury. Fruitful? Well, it was today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. You got some there. Lyndon um, Johnson once said, uh, <coughs> "Politics is all about um, what have you done for me recently?" I only announced the two hundred and forty billion an hour and a half. Oh, that's ago, gone. So. That's that's ages <laughs> in politics these days. That's ages in politics these days. Um, uh, just because I mean I don't want to dwell on it too much, but just on Brexit, how? Uh, confident are you of the, if, if we sat down like this at Christmas, a deal would have been done and Parliament would have voted for it? Yeah, I'm confident that's where we'll be. What impact do you think it will have, Brexit will ultimately have on the NHS? Do you feel like the NHS is ready for whatever the outcome might be? Uh, yes, I, I'm confident that we'll get a good deal and um, that deal will be good for the NHS. Perfect. That's bang on message. Right. Uh, we... <laughs> Uh, and finally, given you, like me, because my birthday is always during Labour Party conference, so uh, you have to basically spend your birthdays always with essentially people from work. How, uh, what are you going to do? I like some of the people I work with. <laughs> well, that's where we differ. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, they say charming things about you too. It's, it's normally during party conference season. It's some oh, I see. I oh, tweet, sorry. I, I tweet very late at night. I tell you I hate in politics. 
everyone. <laughs> uh, and that's because I have to go... <laughs> Thanks. I have to go to, <laughs> I have to go to three of them, and you only have to go to one. Uh, uh, how do you, given yeah, your brief now, yeah. how do you... What's Which your, other ones do you go to? Well, I went to the Lib Dems and the Labour... Crikey, is that still happening? Well... <laughs> we... I'll be honest, there wasn't a lot happening, but I had some lovely fish and chips, and we found a really good mini-golf on the beach. Excellent. Uh, that was excellent fun. You had a few exotic sprasms, did you? <laughs> good Lord. Uh, what's your technique for avoiding a conference cold? That was going to be my question. Uh, well, actually, I've, 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 I've had a flu jab. That's the answer. And if, who's got a flu jab? Who's had a flu jab, rather, this year? We should have done this before we started. We should have said, if you haven't had a flu jab, Get you're, not alla- you're not allowed to ask a question. <laughs> but then I didn't know whether you'd had a flu jab. I've, that, not, I've not had a flu jab. Well, then it would have made this, uh, you know, much more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, have that's... a flu jab. When are you having a flu jab? When am I having it? Yes. I don't know. Have you got it with you now? <laughs> uh, is there a qualified nurse in the room? Absolutely. There is, of course there is. There's loads. This gentleman at the front is going to give you your flu jab. Okay, can we fix that up after? Not now. And everybody else can have the... uh, So I had a flu jab, so that's why I didn't get a conference call. Have a flu jab, have a flu jab. It's good for you, and more importantly, it'll help me not bust my budgets this winter. And, uh, (laughs) if I said that with some feeling, I... If only the Prime Minister had a flu jab last year, it could have all been so different. I think she did a very good job in difficult circumstances. (laughs) Well, we all all hope that it goes better tomorrow. Uh, It's been an absolute uh, pleasure. Thank you, Matt. Um, as this is a Times Red Box event, I, I obviously have to plug the Times uh, and Red Box. You can go to the times.co.uk forward slash Red Box and you can have me sort of taking a, uh, an amusing look at politics every morning in your inbox and you can get all the access to the Times and the Sunday Times online as well. But this is a, it's been an absolute pleasure. Please thank Matt Hancock. Thank you.